screen. Now, we've been in our series on baptism called I Promise uh, for the last few weeks where we're asking that question, who's responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? And thus far in the series, if you uh, want to recap, we've looked at the way grace was the biggest factor uh, when it came to circumcision of the Old Testament and now uh, baptism of the New Testament and the unity of the covenant of grace uh, all throughout both Testaments and where we're at right now. And of course, also uh, what we looked at last week, the way that the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us through the sacraments, so namely, baptism and the communion. Now, as I've mentioned for the past two weeks, this series should really be consumed as a whole. Um, it's just that we can't do it in one message. We'll be here all day, you know? So uh, hang on to any sort of decisions or any sort of theological convictions, decisions about that that you might have until the conclusion of the series, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to talk through it together at that point. Uh, for today, what we'll look at is we'll look to wrap up why we ought to be baptized, uh, building on what we talked about last week as well. Uh, but why don't I pray for us first? Father, as we think about the baptism, um, sometimes our thoughts about it might not be that collected. Uh, sometimes it might just be something that other people go through, uh, that we get to witness it might be a nice break uh, from the preaching of the word uh, that we hear on Sundays. Whatever our thoughts towards baptism might be, Lord, uh, would you help us, Lord, to glean from you, uh, from your word, and from the Holy Spirit, and how you communicate with us uh, through the baptism, God. We really want to know what it is um, that you think about the baptism, why you institute it, and why you uh, expect us to carry out the baptism as well, Lord. Would you speak to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that's gracious to us? Uh, we have our minds clouded and foggy and distracted constantly, and it's only getting worse with the days. So we do ask that you give us clarity of thought, that we might be able to understand what it is that you say through your word, uh, throughout the whole Bible, God, indeed. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would change us from the inside, uh, that you would touch and move our hearts once again, Lord, uh, that we might be moved by grace, that we might be able to commit to you and seek you in all that we do. Uh, be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I know from speaking to a few people that there are some people that are thinking about getting baptized, you know, sometime uh, in the near future, you know, like why else will we be talking about baptism at uh, church? And so some of you guys are thinking about getting baptized. Uh, some of you are thinking about baptizing your children. And some are just pondering about baptism in general. You know, what are my thoughts about baptism? What are my uh, convictions about baptism? Uh, generally speaking, I think we as a church, as a church collective, we should all be wondering about this thing, about baptism itself, and trying to understand why it is that we baptize. I think we should always be thinking about things like this. So, why do we get baptized? Here are three reasons we get baptized. We get baptized because of the example of Jesus being baptized. We also get baptized because of the promises of God for salvation. And finally, we get baptized because of God's command to us. You know, these are uh, three kind of distilled points, and there are uh, more reasons, I suppose, to get baptized, but these are the three that we'll look at uh, this morning. So let's look first at the example that we receive of our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself, being baptized. Okay, this happens in Matthew chapter 3, 
you know, many verses before our focus past 13 to 17. You can turn there or you can look on screen with me. It looked a lot more legible on my screen. Hopefully he can still read it. Okay. Let me read for us. Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Continuing on to verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So here is Jesus submitting himself to baptism by his cousin John, his earthly cousin John. Sometimes we can compartmentalize these things, this event in our minds, okay? And we can forget about the fact that this is happening in a larger context, okay? There's more happening here. Think about who's present at the baptism, okay? This is just a painting and so it looks like you know, there's not that many people around. It looks like there might be a couple of angels and, you know, there's a great big waves or mountains or whatever that is. And so we can compartmentalize these things. But remember, there's a lot of people along with Jesus at the baptism. The crowds that are there to be baptized by John are there specifically for the repentance of their sins. How do we know this? Just a few verses before the baptism of Jesus we see the way that John talks about his baptism. John actually explains, okay, in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism is all about repentance. And in any case, he gives deference to the one who is to come after him, Jesus Christ, his cousin, who will give a superior baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And so this begs the question, if Jesus is superior to John in every single way and gives a greater baptism as well, why does the sinless Son of God receive a baptism that focuses so heavily on the repentance of sins of which he has none? and forgiveness. Why submit himself to this? Some of what we talked about last week plays into what we talk about this week, okay? Some of the mystery that we talked about last week is again brought to the surface in Jesus' answer here. It's very cryptic, okay? Jesus answers here in uh, verse 15. Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Like, imagine you're John and Jesus says to you, like, you'd be like, okay, I don't know what that means. Let's do it, all right? But Jesus says, allow it for now because this is the way to fulfill all righteousness. And in some way, there's a fulfillment of all righteousness, all righteousness through receiving John's baptism for Jesus. How does it come about? This is a mystery. But what is important here is Jesus' perfect obedience to the will of the Father who commands this. This itself is righteousness. There's no sin to be re repented of, but Jesus is baptized. Now, there's a further beautiful mystery in the way that Jesus participates with us in this baptism, though. 
Okay, when we talk about this baptism for the repentance of sins, for forgiveness, the fact that Jesus goes into this, it shows a solidarity with John's call to repentance towards God's kingship. Okay, John is calling for the people to come and repent of their sins, to recognize that God is king, that we are bowing our knees to a king, and Jesus stands shoulder to shoulder with us, along with us. And so Jesus identifies with sinners by participating in a representative role, despite being the only righteous one, despite being sinless, he goes in and he represents us, the sinful. So in his example then, we find an implicit invitation towards us to participate with him also. If Jesus, surely we can too. As Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, the heavens are torn open, it tells us, and the Holy Spirit, okay, the highlighted words there, Spirit of God, descends like a dove upon him. The one who is to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, he himself must first be equipped with the Holy Spirit. And so what about us then? No student is greater than his master. And so we submit ourselves to the baptism also so that we too can participate with Jesus and receive God's grace in a renewing way, in a way that the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of, of salvation to us as we saw last week. And look at how the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon Jesus. The declaration here, it causes us, if we're well-versed with the Bible, to remember similar situations throughout the rest of the Bible as well. If you're not familiar, we will look at it in a moment, okay? Are you aware of these instances where God's Spirit, or even a dove, flew out over chaos waters, okay? The image we see in this passage preaches the promises of God's salvation to us. This is our second point of why we get baptized. It preaches the promises of God's salvation to us, why we baptize and why we are baptized. So in order to understand how the promise is preached, we have to look at the way that water is seen throughout the Bible. Okay, we see water come throughout the Bible all throughout. We see these images of water. Okay, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Okay, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, this is our very first instance of water in the Bible. The very first time that we ever hear about water. The opening verse shows us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the watery depths, waters that were chaotic and dark. This isn't waters like we imagine it. Like it's impossible for me to find a good photo for the background here, okay? These are waters that are chaotic and dark, that are unfathomably deep. You can't reach the bottom. They're inaccessible to people. If we go in, we're dead. No life can exist in these waters. The earth was formless and empty, the Bible tells us, with darkness covering the waters, if you can even imagine such a thing. And it's here that the Spirit of God hovers like a bird over its chicks. 
It was a very bird-heavy sermon. I know I'm, I'm lonely here when it comes to birding, but this is a very beautiful image, okay? So follow along with me. Nurturing and caring. We'll just move on. Okay, he brings order to the chaos and enables life by separating. And you see it a few verses later in verses six to seven. We won't turn there, but you can make a note of that if you want to look at that later in your own time with the Bible. And this is the beginning of things in the separation through the waters. God brings about life through separating in the waters. Now this next example is much longer, okay? So follow along with me. It comes from Noah and the flood, okay? But I've abbreviated it a little bit. We'll start with Genesis 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. We'll jump to uh, chapter 8 there. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of the 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down, but the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark, because the water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. Have you read the story of Noah and the flood before? We see here, again, the chaotic waters filling the earth, where once God created with a word, separating the waters so that life could happen. Here, what's he doing? He's allowing for the waters to flood, to chaotically become, once again, the waters of death to wipe out all of life. It's an act of decreation due to the evil of human hearts. And we see that Noah's family survives on the wooden ark, going through the waters by the hand of God. This separates them, do you see this? This separates them into life from those who are gonna die in the flood, in the waters. God eventually drives back the waters with a wind passing over the earth. Okay, remember that word wind, if you wanna highlight that in your Bible. Noah then sends a dove out over the waters 
There's the dove again. Do you see the connections here with the previous passages that we've looked at so far? God exhibits complete control over the waters, whereas humanity finds water to be chaotic, inaccessible, fearsome. God drives back the waters so simply with a word. God causes a wind to pass over the earth and the waters began to subside. This is decreation and then recreation. This is a new beginning. And this power is finally exhibited once again in another familiar event. There's many more instances of water, but this is the one that we'll look at finally. Moses and the Israelites escaping the Egyptians through the Red Sea. Okay, many of us are very familiar with this, okay? Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove, back, drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, and the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. Do you see the connections like between the previous path? The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So again, the powerful wind is used to drive back the waters. And this word being used here, you see it on screen there, very unfamiliar to most of us. This is the word wind, okay? Just as it's, uh, it was in the previous passage that described the flood for Noah, it's the word ruach, or ruach. Okay, I've got to be careful. There's people in the front row here, which means wind or breath or spirit in Hebrew. Okay, it's used in various ways, wind, breath, spirit. This is the same word that gets used in all of these previous passages. Whether talking about the wind that blew back the chaotic waters with Egypt and the Red Sea, or the wind that blew back the waters when it came to Noah and the flood, or the spirit of God, Ruach, himself hovering over these chaotic waters. God's chosen are able to come through the waters, and even the chaotic waters, the waters of death, become the waters of salvation and life to the people of God because of the Spirit of God. Remember how life was made possible by God in the beginning, and also with the flood, 
by the act of separating. Here again, as the people of God are given safe passage through the waters, these waters remain the waters of chaos and death for the enemies of God. You see this in Noah and the flood, the enemies of God, aka all of humanity, they die, they perish in the flood, in the waters of death and chaos once again with the Egyptians that are pursuing the people of God, they also perish. It's a very grim picture. These are the people that refuse to believe in God. And as a result of seeing all this happening, scripture tells us that people believe. But it's only the start as we see in the subsequent 40 year journey through the wilderness where some don't believe. The promise of God was for salvation, but until they were through and saved, even though they had seen miracle after miracle in Egypt, until they saw the separation between life and death, they couldn't believe. Do you see this? We see in the baptism the promises of God preached to us. Just as the people saw and believed, we too see and believe in his promises to us and so we're baptized. Now, not only the examples and the promises preached, but because we're commanded to baptize and be baptized, so we are baptized. This is our focus verse, uh, focus passage for today, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. And just for the Christians here, the mission of our lives isn't to be saved and then to make for ourselves a comfortable life here on earth. This is very clear. We're not here until we die so that we can have comfort, so that we can have luxury, so that we can relax. We're on mission to gather his chosen people to him. This is made very clear in Jesus' command to us to bring them the good news of God's grace that they might participate together with us, with Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Please take notice of the order in which the command comes to us, though. This is very crucial to our understanding. Go and make disciples of all nations by doing what? Baptizing then teaching. Baptizing, then teaching. We get this order backwards a lot of the time. Do you agree with me here? Consequence of this is that it makes the baptism feel like a bit of a graduation ceremony. We feel like we've arrived. We did it. We finished Christianity. You know, congrats on being such a great Christian. Here's your graduation cap. It's made of water. Yeah, you made it. No, like we saw in week one, it's initiation. Like we saw in the circumcision, initiation into a community. This is one of the most important distinctions that we can make in baptism. Because to look at it the other way is to believe that it's a sort of a graduation. It would infer that we've arrived somewhere, that we've completed our journey. But to see it in terms of initiation is to see it as enrollment. As we learn and as we grow and as we're transformed, our learning continues onwards to eternity. 
This is probably a good time as any to talk about those that walk away post-baptism. Perhaps you know of some people in your lives that have walked away after being baptized. I said in previous weeks, what a painful memory this is for me. You know, what a painful memory I'm sure this created for you guys as well. Maybe it's because we believe that it was a bit of a graduation, that we were celebrating, we made it. You know, these were guys that we believed weren't being initiated, but were mature believers and we're committing to something. And so we believe that their faith was rock solid, that they wouldn't walk away. We believe that they'd arrived and made such a huge commitment and so the pain was amplified. But how is this different? How is their baptism different from those that escaped from the Egyptians in the Red Sea? They saw, they believed, scripture told us, and then what in the 40 year journey? Perished, perished. We heard it last week. Baptism is a visible sign of the gospel. Like listening to the preaching of the gospel, preaching of the word, the offer of salvation is there by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like through the preaching of the word each week, the offer of salvation is there. But I'm sure you realize if you've ever evangelized to someone and you've preached the gospel to them, not everyone takes that offer up. No matter how eloquent you feel, no matter how well you feel like you've contextualized for them, no matter how much you feel like you've really just opened the Bible to them, you've made an emotional plea, you've laid your life bare before them, sometimes people will say, thanks. Now let's get some lunch or let's talk about something else. The offer of salvation is there, just like in the preaching of the word, it's there in the baptism. Not all who hear believe. Not all who see believe. And not all who are baptized believe. Why do we get baptized? It's the example, it's the promises, and it's the command. And who's the central focus of all of these things? It's God. It's not us, it's God. God is the one who provides the example. God is the one who makes and keeps the promises of salvation. He's the one who does the separating work. God is the one who commands. We are tasked with responding, but even in our responding, something fascinating takes place. In the Exodus, we see the enemies of God were crushed by the chaotic waters as they tried to make their way through. The waters come back down upon them. They're crushed. But in Jesus, the story gets flipped. As Jesus participates with us, we participate with him. We've talked about this in recent weeks. He participates with us, the sinless savior, the son of God, in this baptism of repentance, of forgiveness, by going first into the waters as we saw in Matthew chapter three. And yet, what do we see? John 19, 31 to 34 reads this. Since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, so Jesus was crucified by this point. For that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him, because they weren't dead yet, and this 
accelerates the process of them dying. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once, blood and water came out. We see the water flow once again here in Scripture, this time out of the pierced side of the dead God, the dead Son of God, water flows from him. And upon the cross, Jesus goes to judgment in our place. He enters into the chaotic waters of death in our place. And in the water that flows from his side, we find that separating work once again. The separation between the waters and the blood, the separation that brings us in and enables life. Romans 5.10 reads this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We who were once enemies, who would never survive the passage through the waters, we would sink just like the rest of humanity in the time of Noah and the flood, just like the Egyptians during the crossing of the Red Sea. We follow Jesus into the waves as God's enemies, and yet the waters we find don't come crashing down upon us in chaos and death. Instead, we emerge out of these waters, just like Jesus did, rising up out of the waters as brothers and sisters of the Son of God, and we become fellow heirs of his eternal inheritance. Because Jesus went into the waters of judgment, we're able to drink from the waters of life. As Jesus says in John 7, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Baptism is a sign of this judgment that's become salvation revealed to us. And it's a seal of the grace that we receive from God. Where once we were enemies, through the example, the promise, and the command of God, we emerge covered in grace. In Revelation we read, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. This is where we're headed. Brothers and sisters, this is where we're headed. This is our ultimate destination. If we follow Jesus into the waters, as we're initiated into a new beginning through baptism, the waters of baptism, this is where we're headed. This is why we're baptized. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't count us among your enemies any longer. But as we follow the Lord Jesus, 
as we take that step of faith into the waters, even as they rise high above us, even as they threaten to crash down upon us, we know that we're safe. We know that as the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon the Lord Jesus as he rose from the waters, we too rise and find the Spirit of God doing his separating work and taking us into life through the waters. We know that as we face baptism, we know that as we think upon the baptism of our past, for those that have been baptized, we can sing with praise to you because of the work that you've done. We give all glory to you, Father, because it's all yours. The grace belongs to you. Salvation belongs to you. And we give glory to you because that belongs to you too. We know that the Lord Jesus, your son, was sent that he might die on our behalf, in our place, that he might go into the waters of judgment. And we know that through him, we drink of the fount of living waters, that the living waters might reside in us. Thank you for your gift of the Spirit. No longer do we have to call upon the Spirit or beg for it to come near to us, because we know that he resides in us. He's been sent and for those that call Jesus Lord, he lives in our hearts that we might never again be separated from you. Thank you that you've previously done this work of separation and that ultimate work of separation is to come and that we'll reside in your holy city of the New Jerusalem where we'll see that stream of living water flowing down the main street once again where we might see the healing of the nations and we might see that there is no longer any curse. We long for that day, Lord. Strengthen our resolve towards that day. Help us to seek you and love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.